Welcome to the LFC podcast, where our mission is to make, deploy, and multiply mature and equipped Christ followers. We're so glad you've tuned in, and we believe that God will speak to you today as you listen to this message. Today, we're going to close out by talking about loving yourself. How many of you know it's biblical to love yourself? It really is. Mark 12, 30 through 31 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor how? As yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Would you turn in your Bible today to 1 Samuel chapter 18? We're going to start in verse 6. Follow along with me. Here's what it says. It says, Samuel I'm sorry, 1 Samuel, when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came to meet King Saul. They sang and they danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And this made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with 10,000 and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. And here's our key scripture. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. If you're going to love yourself, church, we're going to have to deal with a few things. And the first thing we're going to talk about today is dealing with jealousy, comparison, and competition. They all kind of go together, hand in hand. There were once two men, both seriously ill in the same hospital room. Small room, there was two beds, two tables, there was a door to the hallway, and a window. They both had to be quiet and still, that's why they were there. And they were grateful for that peace and privacy. Visitors were at a minimum, so they began to talk. And they would talk hour by hour, sharing the stories of their lives, their wives, their children, their hobbies. They became really good friends. One man had to spend all of his time flat on his back, but the other man, as part of his treatment, he was allowed to sit up for about an hour a day just to help things drain off of his lungs. And his bed was next to the window. So every afternoon for an hour, the man in the bed next to the window would sit up, look out the window, and describe everything that he saw. And the man lying flat on his back looked forward to that every day. The window apparently looked over a park where there was a pond. And so children would come, and they would feed the fish. They would feed the ducks. And on one occasion, a father and son, they sailed their model boats. And almost every day, young lovers came and walked hand in hand. There were all kinds of flowers, daisies peeping through the grass. And there were bunnies that bounced through the garden like furry frogs. Then there was an open field. And there would be boys and girls throwing frisbees, families flying kites. And if the hour was right, the sun would set a fireworks display in motion as it reflected off the city skyline. The man on his back would lie and listen almost as if he were experiencing every moment himself. 
Then one afternoon, there was some sort of parade. And the thought struck him. Why should he have his bed next to the window? Why should he get the pleasure of seeing all that's going on? He tried not to think about it, but the more he tried not to, the more he did. And within a few days, he had turned totally sour. He should be the one by the window. Even his health began to decline. The doctors were confused because he should be getting better, not worse. And then one night as he stared at the ceiling, just brooding over his thoughts, the man by the window went into a coughing fit and he began choking. He grasped for breath and he groped for the button that would call the night nurse while the man flat on his back laid still and said, nor did anything. The coughing and choking escalated and then stopped. And the man who laid on his back continued to stare at the ceiling. In the morning, the day nurse came in with the bath water and the other man was dead. Well, they took the body quietly with no fuss. And when it seemed decent, the man asked if he could be moved to the bed next to the window. They got him there. They tucked him in and left. And slowly, painfully, and laboriously, he propped himself up on his elbow to look out the window, only to find a blank, gray cement wall. The friend whom he had been so jealous of literally was the one ministering to him, telling him out of his imagination things that he felt would make his friend feel better. In his jealousy, he destroyed the very thing that had come to give him hope and life. That's the power of jealousy. It ruins those around us and ultimately destroys our own peace. If you love yourself, we're going to deal with the jealousy. Jealousy is afraid that what it owns will be taken away. It begins with full hands, but is afraid that it will lose what it already has. It is coarse and it is cruel. It clutches, smothers, it forever reaches, it longs, it squints and thinks of sinister insinuations. And listen, my friends, when jealousy enters the front door, love leaves through the back door. It intrudes to destroy so when that crowd started singing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands, Saul could not handle it and he lashed out. Saul, King Saul, he had been anointed king. He owned the kingship. He had all power and all authority, but his jealousy in comparison took him down a road of destruction and it ultimately destroyed him and it will destroy you too. Saul kept a jealous eye on David. King Solomon, this is what he had to say about it. He goes right at it. He says in Proverbs 14, 30, that envy makes the bones rot. And in the NLT, it says jealousy is like cancer to the bones. In other words, when we're jealous, we're keeping an eye on somebody else. We, we are keeping an eye on what they're wearing, where they're living, 
how they're driving, where they're going, how much they're making, who are their friends, who are their families. And Solomon is saying here, don't kid yourself. At the end of the day, that jealousy and that comparison, it will rot your bones. Here's why. Here's why. Because it leaves us competing. It leaves us competing with people who don't even know that they're in a competition. They're just over there living their lives and doing their thing. And we're over here with our heads filled with critical and suspicious commentary. We're having imaginary conversations when we confront that competition in our mind. I mean, when we do, we look good, right? We start having that conversation in our mind and we've got our power suit on. We've got our uh, Christian Louboutins on and we step out of that 1970 Jaguar E-Series. You know, the one with the leather interior and the wood. Nobody, that's just my own vision and my dream when I confront the one I'm competing. Okay, all right, all right. (laughs) Here's the other thing that happens when we compete with others. When they fail or make a mistake or things don't go the way they should or maybe their kid fails, we're kind of glad about it. Deep down in, we feel a certain kind of way. Proverbs 27.4 says this, anger is cruel and fury is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? You see, we get caught up in that mental space and we're striving hard. We're striving for bigger, for better, for smarter, for faster, for more. And then when we do accomplish those things, we become arrogant and prideful. Or if we don't accomplish those things, we become depressed because we've fallen short and we're comparing and this cycle continues and continues. Jealousy rots the bones. It's like cancer. It ruins relationships. It doesn't make you a very good friend. It doesn't make you a very good sister or sister-in-law. It doesn't make you a very good cousin or brother or child or neighbor. It ruins relationship. You see, I've been there. I know what it is. I like to call it the middle kid syndrome. That's what I blame it on. How many middle kids do I have in the house? Yes, you feel my pain right there. You feel it. You know, you're the middle kid. You've got this great and glorious older sibling who can do no wrong. They lead the way. And then you have this super adorable baby of the family. And there you are. You're just the middle kid. (laughs) You struggle, you're competing, trying to figure out your place. Middle kid syndrome, no, it's just jealousy. I remember when I really, really had to pinpoint it and deal with it was when we miscarried our first child. Um, I miscarried at about three months and it was devastating. It was heartbreaking. If you've walked through that, you know. And I was about a week out of losing the baby and my mom called and she was super excited. She said, you're never going to believe this. We're going to be grandparents. Honestly, in that moment, I thought, 
maybe she knows something. I, how can, I'm like trying to figure, I'm the one, I'm the married child of the family so far. But she goes on to tell me that my, my brother and his girlfriend were expecting a child. And I hung up on her. I hung up, slammed the phone down. It hurt. She didn't mean that. My mom's a good woman. I'm not dogging my mom. I'm just saying my response was pain. And I hung up the phone. And I was so jealous of my sister. She became my sister-in-law, my brother. I was so jealous of the situation. It even affected my relationship with my nephew. It went on to affect relationship between my children and their cousin. It's what jealousy does. It rots. It's like a cancer. Now, King Solomon, King Solomon was a wise, wise man. And he wrote this in Ecclesiastes 4.4 a very long time ago. Do you know what that means? Jealousy is not new. It's been around for a long time. Here's what he says. And I saw that all the toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy, one person's jealousy of another. This too is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind, toiling, going out and killing it, right? Getting the upper hand, pushing ourselves to the limit, stressing. Let me ask you, who are you toiling for? Who are you stressing for? Who are you working so, so hard for? Your family? Probably. Possibly. Maybe. But could it be something else? Could it be something more? Maybe you're striving for approval or for validation. Maybe you're a middle kid and you just have that middle kid syndrome. Yes? You're striving for something. Are you competing with yourself? Are you competing with someone that doesn't even know you're competing with them? Some of you are competing in an industry that doesn't even know you exist, much less that you're competing with them. You have to know this. Probably the saddest thing is that you'll never experience God's purpose for your life if you're distracted by God's purpose in someone else's life. Yeah, let me say that again. The saddest thing is that you'll never experience God's purpose for your life if you're distracted by God's purpose in someone else's life. And in all of that, all of that competition and all of the striving and all of the toiling, we often alienate the people we say we're doing it for. It happens all the time. So maybe you're still trying to prove yourself to yourself. Or maybe you're trying to prove yourself to someone who's not even around you anymore. Or dare I say, because I can, (laughs) maybe you're still trying to prove yourself to someone who's not even alive anymore. It's meaningless, King Solomon said. It's like chasing the wind. Have you ever chased the wind? Did you catch it? You can't catch the wind. There's, 
There's no satisfaction. There's no contentment. It's unquenchable, this chasing of the wind. And no wonder, no wonder church, we're worn out. No wonder we're stressed out that we're so tired because our bones are rotting. But King Solomon, he was a great man. Not perfect, but great. Midweek ladies, you want to know what his name means? Solomon means peace. So this man of peace, he doesn't leave us hopeless. Here's the good thing. In Ecclesiastes 4, 6, he says this, better one handful with tranquility than two with toil and chasing the wind. One handful. So what he's saying is even if you have less, it's better than two handfuls with toil. So less is actually more. It's, it's kind of like realizing after a long day of work when you walk into your home that, that you have a roof over your head, food in your belly, clothes on your back. I love that thought. It's about spending time with your family and your kids, your spouse, and then actually enjoying the time that you're spending with them. It might be about putting that cell phone down or even turning it off so that you can give full attention to where you really want to give it. All the toiling, all the competing. Do you love yourself enough? Do you love yourself, church? Less is more, and the result is peace. Now, Saul... King Saul, he never got it. He never figured it out. As a matter of fact, the jealousy he had towards David, it opened a door to the occult. It allowed satanic forces into his life, and it ultimately is what drove him to committing suicide. Jealousy. Saul kept a jealous eye on David. But here's the thing, God, he has his eyes on the King Saul and me. God has his eyes on the King Saul and me, and he wants to do whatever it takes to cut him away. He loves us so much. He loves us that much. John 3, 16, you know it by heart. He sent his son, Jesus. It's why Jesus went to the cross. Before Jesus went to the cross, he went before someone else. If you know the Easter story, he went before the governor. He went before Pilate, and Pilate gave them the option. He said, hey, crowd, why don't you choose this criminal to be set free? You're allowed to choose one during this season. So how about you choose this criminal? He's a murderer. And do you know who they choose instead? They chose Jesus to be crucified. And the crowd began to yell, crucify him, crucify him. And the Bible says this in Matthew 27, 18, that Pilate knew that they handed Jesus over to them because of their envy. That's what the Bible says. 
because of their jealousy, they handed Jesus over to be crucified. Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross because of jealousy. So every time I'm tempted to be jealous of someone for whatever reason, I need to be reminded that my my very jealous heart that my envious spirit is the very thing that nailed Jesus to the cross. When I think of that way, and when I think of it that way, it's like splashing cold water on my face because that's not who I want to be. I want the power to resist it, and I call upon the name of Jesus that we sang about just a few minutes ago. How do we get through jealousy? How do we do it? Here's the practical side. You confess it is sin. Jealousy is sin. It's included in the works of evil that is listed in Galatians. You can find it there. Peter says we are to lay it aside and to leave it. And James says, listen, where there is envy and self-seeking, confusion and every evil thing are there. Confess it as sin. Then you know what you do? It's pretty easy or pretty hard. You start praying for your competitor, the one you're competing with. You begin to pray for them. Wait, what? (laughs) You want me to pray for the person I'm so jealous of? Yes. Do you know why? Because when you pray for someone, it's hard for them to remain the object of your jealousy. God just has this supernatural thing that happens when we pray for people like that. And all of a sudden, when we do that, our heart begins to change. And before you know it, you're thanking God for his goodness to you. You're thanking God for your family and for your home and for your peace of mind. And your eyes are no longer on somebody else, but they are on the things that God has blessed you with. How can jealousy remain? How can I be jealous of the person when I look back at the way that God has blessed me? You see, this world, this world that we just prayed for, and we're believing that Jesus is going to wait a little bit longer so that our loved ones will be saved. This world doesn't need people who have bigger cars or another boat or a higher education or a bigger, a bigger house or a new outfit. That's not what they need. They need people whose lives have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So good. So good. So if you're going to love yourself, you're going to have to deal with jealousy and envy and competition and comparison. But can we carry this passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 18? We just said it. Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Well, it continues on in 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 10. And I will tell you this, if you're going to love yourself you're going to have to forgive other people. You're going to have to let it go. Look at what it says right here. The very next day, 
Remember, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave like a madman in his house. And David was there. He was playing the harp. The reason why he was there is because that tormenting spirit was there. He had opened the door to evil. And so the only thing was worship music. Can can someone talk to me? Worship music is the presence of the Lord. And here he was raving like a madman. David was playing the harp, uh, asking the presence of the Lord to come into that place like he did every single day to keep the enemy away. But Saul, what what do you do? He had a spear in his hand and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall, intending to kill him, intending to murder him. But David escaped him twice. You see, David had to forgive. He was in the service of the king, he had to forgive him. You see, God has a university. It's a small school, it's a small university. Few enroll in this school, but even fewer graduate. And on that day, David was enrolled. Not into the lineage of royalty at that time, but he was enrolled into the school of brokenness. He ran for nearly 10 years of his life because from that moment, Saul had a jealous eye on him and he intended to kill him. As a matter of fact, if you will go back and you will we'll read that passage of Scripture, that from that moment he was jealous, and he said, the next thing you know, they're going to make him king. He was prophesying out of his jealousy. He was already king. He just didn't have a crown on his head. So here he is. On that day, David was enrolled in brokenness, not into the lineage of royalty, but in the school of brokenness. And you can easily tell when someone has been hit by a spear, they turn a deep shade of bitter. But David never got hit. He forgave. He didn't understand it. He ran for his life. He had many opportunities to kill Saul as he chased for him, did he not? He had many opportunities, but he refused to touch God's anointed. You see, forgiving other people is tricky. And I would guarantee that there are people that you're angry, that you're bitter at, that don't even know that you're angry or bitter at them. Have you ever had that happen? See, it's real quiet in the room when we start talking about these things, but it's things that we've got to deal with. Forgiving other people can be tricky because we start thinking like this, well, if I let them go, they very well may hurt me again. If if I let them go, then no one is really going to know the truth about what happened. Come on, someone talk to me here in this place. We, we start thinking like this. If I let them go, then they're just gonna get, they're gonna get off the hook. They're, gonna, they're just scot-free. They're gonna get off the hook. Well, in his book called Total Forgiveness, R.T. Kendall makes this statement, and he says this. The ultimate proof of total forgiveness takes place when we seriously petition the Father to let those who have hurt us off the hook. 
even if they have hurt not only us, but also those who are close to us. You see, when we hold on to unforgiveness, we actually become blinded to what happens in our own hearts. We don't see what's going on in our own spirits because we think that we're defending ourselves. We're justified by our thoughts. We're justified by our actions. But when we build that wall, we simply are incapable of seeing and understanding of what is actually happening to ourselves. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 addresses it. It says this, if you forgive others, if you forgive those who actually sin against you, your heavenly Father, he's going to forgive you. How many of you are thankful for God's forgiveness, his mercy, his grace? You're thankful for it. But it goes on to say, the very next verse, but if you refuse to forgive other people, your Father will not forgive you of your sins. You see, it does something to us. It affects us spiritually. It affects us how we hear from God. It affects our sins actually being forgiven when we simply won't let it go. And if you take it even further, unforgiveness, it will always grow into bitterness. And here's the thing about bitterness. Hebrews addresses it. It says this, watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness, listen, grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. He's saying, listen, you got to watch out for yourself because it doesn't only just affect you, your unforgiveness, your bitterness that's maybe stemmed from jealousy, maybe stemmed from something that has happened, it not only hinders you, but it corrupts many other people. Do you know that the things that you're holding on to, the things that have hurt you, the things that have injured you, what happens is you've, you've nursed that, you've rehearsed it in your head, and then you disperse it. You give it away. And now other people are drawing the line in the sands and now we have the Hatfields and now we have the McCoys warring against each other and they don't even have a dog in the fight. It corrupts other people. It's a poisonous root of bitterness. I had to deal with it last, this past week. Dealing with the phone call, dealing with it in internet conversation and I thought don't I thought to myself don't you understand what is going on I wasn't even a part of the conversation don't you understand what's going on don't you understand that the, the God the spirit of God is moving the salvations that are happening in this place in the presence of the Lord and my heart got crunchy how many have ever got crunchy before I got a little crunchy all of a sudden on my skin raised up three grit sandpaper and I'm mad I'm mad. 
And I had to literally leave the office and I had to come into this sanctuary because I was feeling a certain kind of way and I had to call upon the name of Jesus that we just sung about and I had to walk up and down these aisles and ask God, Father, forgive me. I don't want this, I don't want this on me. I don't want this hell on me. And as soon as I called upon his name, here he comes, and he gave me the ability to let it go. You see, Disney isn't too far off. (laughs) See, Ephesians talks about it again, that we are to get rid of all bitterness rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, we are to be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Somebody somebody say forgiving one another. Forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. But can I take it a step further? If you love yourself, you're not only going to have to get rid of the jealousy you're not gonna, and, and ask God to do that. You're, you're not only going to have to uh, forgive other people for what they've done. And can I tell you, they may do it again, but you forgive them again. You don't have to be dumb, right? If someone is stolen from you, you don't have to put them in charge of your bank account and give them all your passwords. I mean, come on. That's not forgiveness. That's just plain all dumb. Right? But if you love yourself, not only are you going to have to forgive other people, but you're going to have to learn to forgive yourself. You see, David, after that time, after he ran for his life for nearly 10 years, he came in and God gave him the kingdom. He established the kingdom and brought unity to the children of Israel. God gave him favor and success over his enemies. But one day, the Bible says this, late one afternoon after his midday rest, his siesta. How many like siestas? Right? All in favor say aye. All right? After his nap, David got out of bed and he was walking on the roof of his palace And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And if that wasn't enough, after he got that information, David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Now, here's what you have to understand about this story. David should have never been there in the first place. As a matter of fact, if you just back up one verse, 2 Samuel 11, 1, the Bible says, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, he shouldn't have been there. David stayed behind in Jerusalem when he sent all of his troops ahead. He should have never been there. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the devil used that. And some people, you're not following the plan that God has laid out for your life, and you're at the wrong place, and you're at the wrong time. 
And then we end up, when we get into trouble, we blame the devil for something that's happened in our lives when we shouldn't have been there in the first place. Come on, someone talk to me here in the house. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have been there. So what, what happened? Well, Bathsheba got pregnant. She gets pregnant. And instead of repenting, instead of doing what he should have done, he did what we all do. He tried to cover it up. So he sent for Bathsheba's husband, pulled him out off the war lines, pulled him out, and said, hey, man, you get five gold stars today. You have been promoted uh, king for a day. And now you get to go home. You go home, kick your feet back, and spend time with your wife. It's all good. You get the Medal of Honor today. And he was hoping that he would go home, sleep with his wife. She would presumably get pregnant, and he was going to cover it up that way. Well, Uriah was a man of honor. How could I go out when the Ark and the Covenant is out there? How could I go, how could I go when my brothers are out there warring? So I'm not going to go. So he actually slept on the, the, the front where the kingdom was. He didn't go home. Well, David's like, okay, uh, let's try a different method. Come on in. You're, we're gonna have we're gonna have some Big Macs, right? And we're gonna we're gonna have we're gonna have a, a feast here in the house, right? Uh, surf and turf, steak and lobster, everything that you can. It's all there. And David got him drunk, thinking I'm gonna get him drunk. We're gonna send him home. He's gonna think he slept with his wife, and now she's pregnant, and it's all gonna go away. He wouldn't go home. He wouldn't go home. Stinking people that won't cooperate. Right? So here we are. What does he do then? Well, I can't do this. So he sends him back to the war, back to the front lines with a paper to Joab and said, put him on the very front of the line, and as soon as he gets out there, back off and let him be killed. In other words, he had him murdered to cover up his sin for sleeping with his wife. Now, David, how many know that you can, you can do a lot of things to cover up the sin in your life, but you can't ever fool God? You can't ever fool God. We, we think it's very, very important that other people uh, think a certain way about us, but we, sometimes we don't care what God thinks. First place he should have been is repenting before God, but now what happens? He's trying to cover it up. As a matter of fact, he thinks he got away with it. Her husband's dead. No one's going to know. But here comes Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet tells him everything that he did. And in verse 13, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, it says this, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I sinned against him. And Nathan replied, Yes, you have. But the Lord has forgiven you, and you will not die for this sin as a matter of fact, when you look, David could have been shamed. He could have walked around with shame and ridicule and, and, and uh, literally cowered in a corner and lived in remorse the rest of his life, but he, choose, he, he chose to accept the forgiveness that God was giving him. As a matter of fact, even though David was an adulterer, even though David was a murderer, David did a lot of things that, that we would consider, man, that, this is wrong, but God actually considered David a man after his own heart. 
He wasn't perfect, but what did he do? He lived a life of repentance. He sought the Lord. He forgave himself, and he moved on. You see, shame, shame is different from guilt. Shame is something that can actually be defined as a feeling of embarrassment, humiliation that arises into, uh, in, in relation to the perception of having done something dishonorable, immoral, or improper. I'm, sh- I'm ashamed of myself. I've got shame. And can I tell you, it's even different than guilt. You feel guilty about something, but then you can kind of course correct, but shame is something that sticks to you. It sticks to you like glue. Hebrews talks about it, that Jesus, he, the, the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he scorned its shame. He scorned its shame. You see, shame, what it actually is, it's shame is disgrace. Shame is dishonor. But here's what we have to understand about shame. And if you're dealing with shame today, here's what you have to understand about it. Shame is actually confusion of the one who is ashamed of anything. We're confused about it. Here's what we have to know, that God is not the author of confusion. Confusion. And when he, listen to me, if you are struggling with shame, there is confusion going on within your spirit of who you are. It did not come from God, but God has given you a way out, and it's through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There, therefore, is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, we've spent way too much time listening to the lies of the enemy, wallowing around in the pool. Of, of hell-inspired shame, and it's time that you and I rise up as men and women of God and forgive ourselves and accept the forgiveness that's already being given to us for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another one, man, y'all too quiet today. That's good preaching right there. You see, you've got to start declaring some things over your life. And it may sound a little bit like this. I am born again. I am forgiven. I am alive with Christ. I am free from the law of sin and death. I am far from oppression and I will not live in fear. I have the mind of Christ. I've been called out of darkness into his glorious light. I have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. I am God's workmanship. I am the head and I am not the tail. I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. For no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Somebody rise to your feet in this place and bless the Lord who has forgiven you and set you free today. Come on! Thanks again for joining us today. If you desire to grow deeper in your faith, we want to help you. Text the word GROW to 419-495-6802. To check out all of our upcoming events, head over to limafirst.church and click the events tab. 
Lastly, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future messages. Be blessed.